Welcome to the Tactile World. This is a series of oral history interviews with people who've done care work in a kaleidoscopic variety of contexts, um, from the hospital or nursing home to your own uh, family home to a schoolroom to even the um, square dancing hall or wherever that stuff happens. I don't know. The overarching goal here is to understand where this utterly vital and essential uh, labor fits into a so-called post-industrial information economy, blah, 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 that doesn't uh, value it uh, very much at all, even though it's essential to keeping us alive and sane and, you know, just barely, like, you know, living a, a decent corporeal existence on the face of the earth. So that's what we're looking at here. Today, we're going to be speaking with Maliha Ahmed, who is a linguist based in the Bay Area in California. She's going to tell us about some of her experiences as a caregiver, as a young person who's working with some older people in their own home context. So it's a very, it's very insightful. It's a very interesting discussion. Um, Maliha has a lot to say, and I think it's very valuable. So here's our interview. Uh, my name is Maliha Ahmed. Uh, I am a linguist by training, but I've done a lot of other jobs um, just because I haven't yet gotten a foothold in the linguistics industry. But um, yeah, so in terms of care work or invisible work, um, I was a caregiver while I was in college. Uh, I worked for three different clients over the course of a year and a half, so I feel like um, early sort of got in touch with their, or got entrenched in the lives of my caregiving clients. And uh, yeah, it was interesting to see what it would be like firsthand, because I just thought it was going to be a college job. I didn't expect it to be like really impactful on my entire life. So this is something, did it go beyond your experience as an undergrad student? No, uh, coincidentally, my client, the last client that I was working with, he hap like coincidentally died during my last semester of college, and after that, I was like, I don't think I have it in me to try to get anywhere, like to do caregiving again, and so I didn't like even when I couldn't find a job after um, after college for such a long time, I was like, ah, I don't know, yeah, I don't think I have it in me to do any more caregiving. My best friend was um, at the same time as me, uh, like as I was a caregiver, she was working in a, in a preschool. And it was really interesting because one of the things that they teach you it, like in both things is uh, not emotional detachment, but creating a sense of emotional distance so that you can have like, you can continue to be professional. So like, for instance, like um, a surgeon who's not allowed to perform surgery on their family member because, you know, maybe their hands will shake or something. So in a similar way, like they tell you that you need to create some kind of professional distance between yourself and either, you know, for my friend, the babies, for me, the clients, um, but it's really hard. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's really hard. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've definitely heard um, patients but also caregivers talk about the sense that sometimes a caregiver 
especially in a sort of um, institu- institutionalized living facility environment, um, maybe seeming cold or callous even because they've had to create that distance uh, for themselves. And from the point of view of the patient or the client, maybe they seem uncaring, but you know that's probably a, a, a result or a side effect of the fact that they've had to care for so many people. Then on the other side, obviously the flip side that um, being so invested and so attached and so invested is a very economistic sounding word, but like deeply, like emotionally, viscerally caring about the people that they're working with and how much of a toll that can take. So it seems like a really difficult um, balance to strike for so many people. I would say so. Uh, I would say that institutionalized caregiving is probably harder. Like when you're working in, um, so I was specifically going to the houses of, um, I was going to the houses of clients. Uh, So it's called, uh, the system is called in-home support services and it's paid for through Medicare. And, um, Basically, these are people who are able to live at home if they just get extra support. Uh, sometimes they are at pretty low levels of needing support, such as uh, I had I knew somebody who was um, she had very bad sleep apnea, and um, like so then it would make her kind of woozy throughout the day um, on days that she on days that she didn't get enough sleep or wasn't able to sleep properly despite her best efforts, she would end up being very unsafe throughout the next day, like her driving would be terrible, for instance. Um, And she was also elderly, however, when she had decent sleep, she was, despite being elderly, she was considerably stronger than me. (laughs) And it was always very impressive to, because she'd be like, oh, Malika, can you help me pick this box up? And I would try, and she would look at me like I was... um, like I was a child, and, <laughs> and yeah, and then she'd be like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Let me get that," and then she would pick it up, and I would be like, "Oh, okay, well, she's very strong. That's that's awesome for her." Um, so some people were really strong and only needed help on certain bad days. Um, some people didn't necessarily, yeah, like I, I didn't have to you know, change her clothes, I didn't have to cook her food. I could, that was like within the scope of my duties, but I didn't need to, she was well, like she was very much able to do her own stuff. She would just occasionally have bad days where it was really important that I was there. Um, And those would always happen coincidentally, um, which is very unfortunate. Uh, Yeah, contrastively, um, I knew somebody who had a caregiving patient, or client who was, like he had to handle all the extrations of his client because the client had like ostomy bags and was fully quadriplegic and um it was just it was uh yeah and it's tough because um you do get notice for what level of care your client will need um you definitely find that out before you get the job obviously <laughs> before like while you're interviewing you are also interviewing them to find out how hard the job's going to be. But everybody, you get paid the same no matter how hard the job is or how easy it is. Um, and I think that that's uh, very unfortunate because it leads to, like, where's the motivation to provide support to clients who need extra help? And, I mean, is that that's not just in the sense of, like, physical strength. Um, it's, it's other dimensions of the work that are harder or, yeah. or easier? 
Well, if you have a quadriplegic client, you're obviously going to need more physical strength. There's, yeah, because you can't just, you know. For my client, uh, who I was speaking of, who had sleep apnea and was just, like, very woozy every so often, um, she basically just needed a buddy, right? Like, and she would be fine on her own otherwise. Um, contrastively, like, if a, yeah, when you have a client who can't, like, move on their own. I had another client who... He didn't have use of his legs, he was paraplegic, and he, so I got hired because he needed help doing his wheelchair transfers, and definitely that is the case that you need more physical strength, but there are other dimensions, so like, um, yeah, so for instance, like, my client didn't need me to manage his waist for him, um, yeah, I, I think that, that they, yeah, what, <laughs> When you are signing up for the IHSS website and you tell them what you're willing to do, they will also ask you, um, they will ask you what you're willing to do. And it'll be a whole list and it'll be from normal stuff like cooking, cleaning, uh, some amount of yard work and, you know, accompanying them or driving them places if they're elderly and can no longer maybe see or whatever or if they've got seizures. Um, yeah, so, like, I was uh, rejected from being on the registry because there was stuff on the hard, like, the harder tasks list that I was not willing to do. So the way that I found some of my clients was literally through Craigslist. They told me, go to Craigslist, because we tell those clients who have easier tasks to post their work to Craigslist as well. So you weren't, you weren't so actually... Motivation. You weren't actually working through the agency then? Uh, I was getting paid through the agency. Oh, okay. But they rejected you for... So I wasn't for the registry, which means oh. that I would um, every single client I had, I would have to find on my own. While as if someone's on the registry, they get uh, people calling them and asking them to come interview. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. Thank you. I didn't. I I didn't understand it first, and that makes total sense. How did you find out about this work, or how did you come to this job? I mean, when you first heard about it, what did uh, you think? Yes. Um, so I uh, I was at the time friends with somebody, or I was quite close with somebody who uh, I'm no longer friends with because they turned out to be very racist. Um, but. Uh, he had, he had, uh, he had clients who had, so, okay, if we back up, uh, the way that IHSS works is that somebody will come to your house, well, let's say you are the disabled or the elderly person, they will come to your house and they will, uh, evaluate how much care you need. So, and then based on that, you will get assigned a number of hours per week. So one of my clients uh, was very high needs because he was uh, he didn't have legs or nope he didn't have use of his legs. <laughs> yes, one of my clients didn't have use of his legs, so he was assigned like 55 hours a week, which means that um, caregivers could work 55 hours a week for him. While as another client was much easier, so she only needed 20 hours a week. So I had uh, or my ex friend um, had a few clients who needed more people to take up their hours, and he was not able to help them. Uh, and w when he told me about it, I was like, hey, I'm looking for a job. I am a poor kid in college. <laughs> so 
So that's how I came upon the opportunity, simply by, like, talking to people and being like, oh, hey, this is a good way. Um, And the fact that I was vouched for by my friend um, probably gave me a leg up um, in getting those jobs. And luckily for me, both of the first two jobs were fairly easy. Um, That clients really, like, one of them really just needed a buddy, basically, as I told you, you, like... um, there were a couple of instances where it was really crucial that I needed to, like, drive for her because otherwise it would have been very dangerous. Um, yeah, so, yeah, contrastively, another client, she um, she had brain cancer, and it made her disabled. I feel like I'm not saying this very well. This is not eloquent at all, but <laughs> bear with me. Um, it made her disabled. She wasn't... Um, like her lexical axis was very weak. She, uh, she was. It was frequently the case that she'd be like, Wait, "What is that word I'm thinking of?" And she wouldn't be able to think of it. Um, and uh, because a lot of her needs were um, predictable, uh, especially after I'd worked for her a few times, it like we got pretty good at um, communicating because she'd be like, "You know the thing," and I'd be like, "Oh yes." The garlic for your spaghetti. <laughs> uh, it would be, it would be like, yeah, we we were able to make it work because we worked together for a while. It was really easy work. What was that term that you mentioned about um, not being able to find the words? I think it's called aphasia officially. Right. But I was referring to it as like lexical access when you've got like you know you, there's a word and it's on the tip of your tongue and you can't access it. So. <laughs> So that is the linguistic way, but I think the like neurological way to talk about it is aphasia. Um, and then I think there's two types of aphasia, and one of them is like you can speak fluently, but you're speaking gibberish, and the other is um, you can like you can't speak fluently because you can never think of the word. I was kind of wondering, like, what I don't know if your uh, training in in linguistics bears upon it, or if there are other skills or experiences that you had that you thought might have helped with this work um what what do you think like do you feel like you what the what you were bringing to the job made a difference or contributed to how you did this work um i would say that linguistics didn't necessarily help as much what did help was probably that um a lot of my family has background in medicine that helped me be really clinical when things like yeah, there was one instance where for a client I did have to do waste management. Uh, uh, they had, yeah, they they had a bad moment. They had a really bad day where they pooped themselves and they were like, oh, shit. I, well, I mean, literally, but also that was not meant to be. They were not aware of it is what I'm trying to tell you. Right. You know what? I can restart this and say it in a smoother way. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, I had a day where I had a client who pooped themselves and they were very embarrassed because they were not conscious that it was happening. I remember thinking just the week before, I was like, boy, am I glad I don't have to deal with anybody's poop. (laughs) And then, uh, you know, here we are one week later uh, and I'm like, oh, great, it's me. I have to be the one to deal with this poop. But some part of my brain turned into like to that clinical like side where I was like oh okay this is like my mom like without you know like we all have maybe complicated relationships with our moms but one of the things I will say about my mom is she never let me feel like she was grossed out by my bodily functions when I wasn't in control of them how many times did she have to clean up my puke <laughs> uh, or my poop or my whatever and 
as soon as I was conscious of it, um, in terms of like, you know, I got old enough to be like, oh no, I'm making my mom clean up my, my vomit or something. And she was still like, so just absolute stone face, like, oh, it's okay. We're going to get this fixed. And that was the side that I was able to tap into with my client when, yeah, when I had to deal with that. And I thought that was extremely useful. Right. That was something I didn't know about myself. It made me feel like, wow, okay, maybe I have other hidden skills. So I would say that this was a character building job for me. There, there are these things that you can summon within yourself that you didn't know were there necessarily. You described it as clinical, though, and I, I, I wonder. I, that's kind of an interesting word. I, I know it's a, it has a medical sort of meaning, but with your mom, this kind of. Um, I don't. Oh, like a compassionate. I see. So there is a definite like. I, I see what you're talking about. That there's um, like clinical versus compassionate, and so what I'm saying when I say clinical is like putting the needs of the client before your own needs. For instance, in that moment, I was like, oh, okay, this is really gross, and I don't want to do it, but I didn't think those things, or I wasn't like I thought those things a lot later i was like i wish i wish i didn't have to do it but in the moment i was like oh my client is experiencing kind of a trauma of like having lost control of such a thing that they were used to not losing control of that is way bigger than me being grossed out by a smell right right that's such a great way to put it put on some gloves and i can make this better and it's going to be okay my client's going to be stuck with the fact that this happened to them yeah, and that that hurts them more than you smelling the poop, right? Um, potentially. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, that's such a. I really. I'm so glad you you outlined that or delineated that kind of distinction or or non-distinction really between um, cl- being clinical and and being empathetic or compassionate. Um, it maybe maybe in colloquial language, those those things seem to be um, somewhat separate or distinct, but. Or people assume clinical means cold and unfeeling or something, but... Is this not what they talk about when they talk about bedside manner? Like, bedside manner would be about putting their needs above your own uh, and also, like, making sure that... um, Yeah, like, one of the things that I was uh, doing for my client was, like, okay, here's the order of operations that we're... Like, this is, like, a way that I talk to myself all the time where I'm, like all right, I have to move from this apartment to this other apartment. What's the order of operations? And <laughs> I figure out, it, you know, just like put it in a list. And, like, I think that me delineating exactly what I was going to do to my client or with my client, like how I was going to clean them up, um, and like focusing on that, that kind of stuff really helped. So that, I, I would say that that kind of compassion is part of, like, bedside manner or that kind of, like, oh, okay, I can see that your brain is, like, sort of short-circuiting because you do not want to deal with the fact that you just pooped yourself. Let's make it work. <laughs> let's work <laughs> around it. Let's let's uh, see what we can do in a way that you don't have to deal with it more than, you know, more than you have to deal with it. Yeah, totally. And I, I totally relate with this way you were talking about sort of operationally defining things, you know, um, break this thing down into discrete tasks and how you carry them out and just do them like it's a it's a, it's a good way of uh, approaching problems uh, or, or just, you know, 
work, really. Um, I was wondering about your sort of experience of time um, in the job. Like, uh, what was the frequency of your uh, work hours, the duration? Were they very consistent or intermittent? Just in that, like, most limited sense of, like, you know, what your schedule was like. Okay, good question. So um, I never worked full time, um, except for maybe one or two weeks. Most of the time I was working, uh, I was working while going to school, which means that generally I was working like probably going to school for the majority of the time and then working maybe 12 hours a week or 20 hours a week, something like that. Yeah. So my client who had brain cancer, I worked for her like just four hours a week every week. And that was just, that was actually due to logistical constraints because uh, the only buses out to where she lived were, would only come by a certain number of times a day. So then, um, yeah, due to logistical constraints, I would only work for her that much. Uh, while as the other clients who lived closer to town or closer to me, it would be more. Um, my last week or my last month of caregiving, I was working, yeah, my last month of caregiving, I was living with my client which was very much an act of compassion on his part. Um, he let me move in with him because my he had an extra room and my living situation got really dangerous. Yeah, so then for that last month that I was living with him, it was really easy for the rest of the care team to be like, hey, are you, are you, are you home? And I would be because <laughs> it was my home. And yeah, and I would just go ahead and I would regularly, more regularly get asked to take over shifts if somebody couldn't make it in the morning or something. Right. So that those are like several different ways of like the time being structured. Um, yeah, because it's a lot easier to like when I'm living with him, it's a lot easier to be like, oh, OK, let me just get you out of bed in the morning as compared to um, if I'm not living with him and like having to go all the way over just to take over someone's morning shift or something. So, I mean, I wonder like. What was your experience of time like? Not just the, like the structure of time, but like, you know, were there sort of long periods of not doing something and then intense activity, or was it a sort of constant engagement? Or um, did you feel like time moved very slowly or very quickly? I'm just kind of curious about that. Oh. <laughs> uh, let's see. So I would say that particularly in the beginning when it got. Yeah, I would say that the majority of the time, time passed really slow when I was working for these clients. And part of that is because um, a lot of caregiving is very slow paced and there's not a lot of days necessarily with most clients that you have to, um, you know, jump into action and be really good at your job. Most of the time it's like, okay, and now we cook a meal. Okay, and now we watch a movie. (laughs) You know, it's... um, it can be very, yeah, well, as compared to, like, my normal uh, days at college, which would be a lot more hectic. I'd have to, you know, try to write papers between classes, like, run off to try to catch the bus on time. Yeah, time passed a lot slower as a caregiver because here I am in their space. I'm accommodating them, so I have to match up with them rather than force them to match up with me. Obviously, um, I wasn't... Like I was, uh, I was, I think 21 or 22 when I started caregiving. So I wasn't necessarily fully in control of um, how I projected myself around others. So I'm sure what we did was actually made somewhere in the middle. But my attempt <laughs> was always to accommodate them rather than make them accommodate me. 
Yeah. So what I'm trying to say with that is that um, a lot of times when you're disabled or elderly, um, the pace of your day is slower. You know, like um, like with spoon theory is just sometimes that's your day. You just have to go slower. What was that? What was that theory? like spoons and forks and knives. So spoon theory is about um, chronically ill people. So the idea is that you have good days and bad days, and some days uh, you have lots of spoons, and each task takes a certain number of spoons. So showering is considerably harder than, um, like, wiping down your armpits with a wet wipe. (laughs) Uh, Or... Yeah, or like maybe some days you don't have the spoons to go outside and socialize with your friends because you're like in too much pain or too tired or whatever. So yeah, spoon theory is a useful way maybe to think about this because a lot of times these clients are dealing with the fact that they're, you know, they're not they're not the, the young bucks they once used to be. So the, the idea is that a unit of energy or effort or is a, is one spoon and so it's the question how many spoons or yes the person who came up with this framing uh she was literally in a diner when she was trying to explain why you know some days she could come hang out with her friends and other days she couldn't so yeah while she was in that diner she picked up a bunch of spoons and she was like okay so this is how many spoons it takes to do this activity and her friend quickly realized, like, oh, I see. So you're prioritizing because, like, some days you gotta you gotta ignore the shower so that you can cook yourself a proper meal. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. This is a this is a term that I, would, I was not familiar with. That's so that's so cool. I'm glad you um, shared that. Um... I guess, like, before we wrap up entirely, um, I'm wondering, did you, were the relationships that you had with the different clients very different, or were they? did they have a lot of commonalities? Were they very distinctive, each one, or did, was it kind of, there was kind of a, a common... common commonality, I guess, across those, those relationships? The main commonality was the one that I already told you about, which is that uh, it's really hard to have emotional boundaries between yourself and somebody that you're taking care of, because you put yourself in this framework of empathizing with them, and you know you're you're here to take care of them and not protect them, but like sort of protect them. Sure. Uh, so it's really hard to create that sense of emotional or like professional distance. Like all of my clients, straight up, were like, "Monita, I love you," and I was like, "I love you too. Thanks." <laughs> <laughs> and it's just you know, there's like I would say for me, it was really hard to avoid having that kind of relationship with them. I think that one of my clients was kind of I ended up having to quit working for her because I think in some ways she was a little bit like not resentful. She didn't think that she she didn't want to need help and this is the client who I told you was considerably stronger than me when she was like fully awake <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so for for clients like her or in her particular case I, I did end up having to stop working for her because anytime I did something that she didn't want me to do she would make it so personal like one time we went to the phone shop because something was wrong with her phone and she went up and I knew she was going to do the grandma thing where, like, you describe your phone issue in a way that makes no sense. 
this is very rude of me. I should not have said that in that way. <laughs> yeah, she she went up to the phone shop, and I know she's not as uh, tech savvy, so I knew that maybe it would be tough for her to explain the problem she was experiencing. So I I didn't feel like I was talking over her, but she felt like it. So I, like I went up and I was like, oh, this is the problem that's happening, and this is when it happens. And the person was like, oh, okay, let me help you with this. And then after we left, she said, Malia, never talk over me. And I was like, oh, I'm very sorry. I didn't realize I was doing that. And she said, like, instead of leaving it, okay, thanks for apologizing or anything like that, she said something about how it, like, displayed my immaturity. But it just everything, all these little things just became personal attacks because she didn't want to be helpless. She didn't want to be somebody who needed help. Yeah, I mean, there's so a... She there's treated a... me like an employee rather than like a helper, if that makes sense. I mean, I was her employee, and she was my boss, but not like that. <laughs> it's like, I, I'm just, I'm here to make her life easier. I'm not here to be scolded on whatever character flaws she thinks I had. So we ended up, like, as soon as I gave my notice, she immediately was like, oh, I see I've been very hard on you. And we ended up being friends. (laughs) Yeah, we ended up being friends after I stopped uh, working for her. But, yeah, I think your original question was about, like, the kinds of relationships I have with them. That would be, like, one of the significant, one of the things that were significant. I would say overall my clients created a human connection with me. And there's a possibility that that was luck, um, that I happened to find clients who were like, oh, I want to be your friend. But that, I mean, that is how it was. Like, I, I, I would say that I developed genuine and, yeah, just very genuine connections with all of my clients. Yeah, I mean, I can totally understand the situation with this person. I mean, it, it was not nice that she was kind of rude and nasty to you, but she felt embarrassed or humiliated by the fact that she couldn't do something and her way of projecting that onto you is to say well you're just so immature like it's like well you know you were embarrassed because you couldn't really explain this the right way and this young woman seems to be so much more fluent and effective in explaining it and maybe that makes you feel like old and you know old and in the way as they say I mean, I can. I, I think that happens a lot to to elderly people that want to be able to do things and want to have their own agency and don't want to be feeling like someone is stepping in their place. I guess. And I mean, it's not nice the way she. <laughs> it's not the way nice well, the way yeah. she said like, it to you. Didn't but want to be helpless, so she wanted to be the boss instead of like looking at us as a cooperative effort of like, oh, me and her together, we're on the same team, we're working to make her life better. Instead of seeing it, or instead of behaving in that way, even though ostensibly she did feel that way, yeah, yeah, even despite that, she was still like. I remember talking about being tired one time, and she was like, "How are you tired? All we do is like sit in the car while we're driving to places." And I was like, "Well, I mean, at the time, I did not know, but office jobs are extremely exhausting because they're boring. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, sitting down is not fun." <laughs> Yeah, so it's just like everything turned into like, yeah, because she needed to be in control of this aspect, so she needed to be the boss. It just came out in a bad way, but I know that she didn't, I'm sure that this was influenced by like, you know, past stuff that wasn't really about me. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask about your use of the word boss, because 
I I think I would have thought that the individuals you were working with were clients, which I guess they are. Um, and in some way, the agency that you're working for is kind of your employer, but you 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 see the client as the boss or as the employer, and in, in a way. I would say it's a pretty good um, it's a pretty good analog to like a more traditional like office job because I'm reporting to them, right? Uh, they're the ones who can tell art. Yeah, because all my clients are lucid. I don't know if in a non-lucid client, like a client who needs memory care or has dementia or something, I don't know if those clients um, get IHSS or if they're specifically put into like assisted living facilities. However, yeah, she... Hmm, I would say it's a good analog because I am reporting to them. They're lucid, so they're able to they're able to talk to IHSS and say, hey, this caregiver has been stealing from me, or this caregiver, has, like, anything that you that a normal boss could snitch you out to HR for, like, this client could snitch me out for. Right, that's such an interesting okay, way of I never, framing it. Yeah, I hardly ever talk to anybody from IHSS, unless they were calling me to check on my timesheets or whatever, but my client was the one who would sign my timesheets, so... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so then bosses, like, yeah, even though you're creating a care team with them, um, with them at the center, they're, yeah, they're still the boss because they still tell you their needs, and you have to make those needs your, you know, your key performance indicators or whatever. Right. No, that totally makes sense. I think that analogy with HR is so interesting. Like you said that you didn't know at the time that office jobs are so boring or tiring. Like I, that makes me assume that you've done office jobs subsequently. And uh, how did you, um, yeah. how did you see, did you, did you find the, the care work to be more interesting or more like rewarding or versus more like traditional white collar work? Or would you prefer one or the other? I would say there, in my office jobs, traditionally, there has been more interesting variety of tasks when I've been a caregiver compared to when I've been, like, an office worker. However, I'm a really social person, so then it is the case that it's, it can be more interesting to work uh, in an office because, like, I make friends with those people. Like, I haven't really had super positive office experiences. One time because um, the content of the work sucked, and then one time because the management sucked. So, but one thing that's been constant in uh, in those jobs has been just the fact that I was able to make friends with caregivers. Or, sorry, not caregivers. <laughs> I was able to make friends with coworkers and create something create a nicer like you know i can't control management but i can control the work culture that immediately surrounds me the people that i eat lunch with or you know the people who's like if i am able to sit wherever i want the people who i choose to sit next to stuff like that wow that's such an that's such an interesting point um yeah, it's really nice when, like, okay, so this person will not understand my joke. That's okay. I'll tell this other person. <laughs> um, that's not a great example. That's not a great example. But, yeah, or I guess one thing that I could appreciate about office work is that it's not as crucial. I don't I don't know that much about the medical industry in terms of, like, I don't know how to care for bed sores, for instance. 
had to learn from my third client who um, didn't have use of his legs. I keep saying that instead of paraplegic. <laughs> yeah, so I, didn't, I had to learn how to take care of bed sores for him. But for instance, when I had the client who had pooped himself and I had to clean them up, like, I had never done that before for another person. I did not know if I was doing it wrong. I just was like, okay, try to clean the whole thing. <laughs> but I mean, ultimately I was the, like nobody else was gonna be home for hours. I was the, I was like the first, second, and third line of defense. <laughs> and I had to make sure that everything was okay so that they wouldn't end up with any, you know, rashes or problems from it. and. That was like, I really had to be on it, um, and quite a lot was depending on me, and I've never had an office job that, or like, I've never had another job in general that made me that important or, you know, crucial to the mission of making sure that the, making sure that the job gets done, in this case, that the client is well, well as they could be. That is something I can appreciate about office jobs. Uh, while the work is not as varied and it's not as interesting usually, you're, you you kind of know what you're getting into with caregiving work. It's always going to be some aspect of cleaning, some aspect of maybe cooking, some aspect of like entertaining the client um, by finding movies they want to watch, finding music they want to hear, books they want to read, or whatever, you know, activities together. Yeah, or like I had a client who um, would have me volunteer with her, which I thought was honestly very funny. But yeah, so she would have me volunteer. She would just like take me along and be like, "Okay, now you're volunteering, except you're getting paid, so you're volunteering for money." It it just yeah, you just you don't you don't know everything you're gonna get. You just know the basics of what you're gonna get when you have a caregiving job compared to an office job where everything is like it's the same day in and day out. Yeah. And it's kind of low stakes, right? It's like if this email doesn't get responded to in the next couple hours. Nobody's going to die. Yeah, and uh, nobody's going to be sitting in their excrement, you know, which is a very immediate, like, very visceral, present thing that you alone are responsible for. That's such a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, that is the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was definitely something I would comfort myself with uh, when I was dealing with stressful things in the office where I was like, well, at least no one's sitting in their own poop if I don't do this right. <laughs> yeah. I thought there was an interesting thing you said about like caregiving versus office work, which I, I kind of inferred from what you were saying that like office work was better in a way because there were more people as opposed to caregiving where basically in your case it was one person. I mean, that's not always the case with caregiving, obviously, but like in this particular work that you were doing, it was just you and the other person, and then there was this office job where you could like talk to people in the break room. Is that is that a, a salient difference? Um, yeah, but the thing is, I did make these positive connections with my. I never had, or like, I guess I had that sort of antagonistic connection with that one client. Um, but we, you know, it wasn't always bad, which is what. Uh, you know, <laughs> here's here's like a classic relationship with an abuser where, or like an abusive relationship where you're like, but it's not always bad. I'm very glad I quit is what I'm trying to say, but it wasn't always bad. Like we did have these aspects of positive, like genuine connection, but 
in an office environment, you're if you do have an antagonistic relationship with someone, it's a little easier to avoid them. Whereas if you have an antagonistic relationship with your client, you gotta quit. Right. The relationships are very rewarding when they're good, though. Right. I don't want to say that the social aspect is the main is like a really good reason to choose an office job over a caregiving job. What I would say is that the pay is a really good reason to choose an office job <laughs> over a caregiving job, because at least in California, um, the standard rate for caregiving through IHSS is like, or last time I worked, it was something like twelve fifty an hour. I believe, which is not a lot for the work you have to do sometimes. And for the responsibility. Yeah, I mean, it's (laughs) one, like, potentially someone's life is in your hands if something goes awry. Like, I don't know, people should be paid like it. Or like, I don't know, like, we've been really noticing the fact that during the pandemic it becomes really obvious what kinds of people are putting their lives at risk by working and it's the people who are working in grocery shops it's the janitors the cleaners you know the essential workers so when we see that we think okay maybe they should be getting raises right now and the answer is they absolutely should caregiving is an essential job these people like you can't put people into yes (laughs) I am not being eloquent here, but yeah, one thing I will say, the reason that I think that it's easier to work, like, because institutional caregiving is kind of office-like, where you have a lot more of the work politics rather than whatever is going on just between you and your client. Right. But I think, okay, this is not going to be maybe the greatest analogy, but there was a period of six months where I worked in San Francisco. And it sucked. And a big reason that it sucked is that while you're walking around, you just, like, San Francisco is a cursed city. <laughs> like, first of all, just on the matter of me walking from the train to work was, like, fraught because we don't, like, the city is not really made for pedestrians. It's not really made for cars. It's not, like, every single day I was, <laughs> like, I was walking very legally. I only crossed at crosswalks, and I only crossed when the light was on my side. But every single day, I was dodging cars and buses <laughs> and trying not to get hit and thinking, what if I was a child? <laughs> like, what if I had real short legs? Like, you know, like, then that wouldn't have turned out okay for me. Yeah, but another reason that it was really hard for me to work in San Francisco was just the sheer level of suffering that is on display in that city. I don't think it's the case anymore. Um, During the pandemic, a lot of the people who um, are unhoused have been moved into hotels and stuff, which is a positive because I think shelter is really important because shelter means you get real sleep. And I think that's a big problem for homeless people, or I guess here they say transient people. Yeah, so I think that a really important aspect uh, is taken care of by that. But it also shows us that like these people can be housed. Anyway, so to bring this tangent back, I feel like the reason that I would consider I would not consider institutional caregiving, uh, while I would consider doing one-on-one in-home care again, is because of the sheer level of suffering that you see on an institutional level. Yeah, it, the reason that I feel pretty confident about this is partially because I've had to go visit people in institutional homes, and it's like the smell is different. You can't control that. 
the way that you can in a home when it's just one person. You like right. air it out, open some windows. Like that's not as easy in a facility. Another reason is like just through the testimony of my best friend. Uh, after she worked in the after she worked for the babies, what is it called? Preschool. <laughs> after she worked uh, for the preschool. <laughs> She did end up going on at some point to go work for an institutional facility, and it just sounded really difficult. It sounded it sounded considerably harder. I think that it's harder to build that personal connection with your client, which means it's harder to have them trust you when they need to tell you things that would be embarrassing but need to get done. Yeah, or it's harder to care about everybody because you're going to get drained. That professional distance like not having as much professional distance in a one-on-one setting it makes sense but it also makes you tuned into their needs well as in an institutional facility how do you have that how do you care for each client and not get drained um i've worked for a little while in a a residential care facility and you do get to know the people i mean because they are there for a while and you know their personalities and their peccadillos and their own problems that they have What's a um, peccadillo all their particularities their little eccentricities their like little things about them that are problematic i mean some suffer from more dementia than others and some when they are you know slipping in and out of a sort of more um what an adorable word. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I was trying to, I mean, I, I'm describing something that can be often very uh, unsettling and, and, and heartbreaking. Dealing with people in their own homes as opposed to dealing with people who are sort of unglued in this, like, alien landscape that they don't want to be in is very different. Yeah. I guess that is a really positive aspect of, like, dealing with people in their own home because the fact that they're comfortable does make them more comfortable with you. Yeah, I've, I just, I feel like the sex stories that my clients were telling me were so much more in detail than they would usually tell their own family members, and it was because <laughs> I had just enough professional distance that they were like, okay, let's talk, and then, like, <laughs> but then enough personal connection that they're like, let me tell you about some goss from when I was hot and young. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's and that's never something you want to hear. <laughs> we don't want to take away the sexuality of these people. Like, everybody deserves to be able to, you know, have their own sex and sense of sexuality without um, having somebody else be like, ew, gross, but like, ew. <laughs> I don't want to hear about some of it. <laughs> You're 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 close enough to confide in, but far enough away from that it's not personal or embarrassing for them to say it. So they can say lots of yeah, things. Yeah, like they would <laughs> tell their own kids or something. Or yeah. like in one of those cases, I think that the reason that she told me her sex story was because um, uh, her other caregiver was a man. So I think it was partially that I wasn't family, I wasn't you know like a church friend or something, but also that I was a woman. <laughs> Here are some things that help people feel comfortable with me. I'm sure, absolutely. Um, we're coming close to the end of our time, but um, I'm just wondering if you have any other thoughts you'd like to share about like what your experience with caregiving has been in the past and um, how it relates to other kinds of work you've done or your other experience in life, if there's anything else you want to say. 
Um, I would say that it really taught me how to talk to people and, or, I mean, there's been lots of instances in my life where I've, like, had the opportunity to learn how to talk to people, but during caregiving, you really have to learn how to listen in a way that, um, other jobs don't force you, excuse me, that was a burp, uh, (laughs) during caregiving, you have to really learn how to listen to people in a way that other jobs do not force you to, um, yeah, particularly with like one of my patients or one of my clients had aphasia and she, I guess I don't know if that's the right like word for it. I don't know if I'm like diagnosing her, you know, she like with her, I had to listen to what wasn't said because mm. she couldn't say it and taking care of her was like a whole different experience in that way. Yeah, I think that caregiving is a really, ah man, it shouldn't have been my first job. <laughs> to learn how to take care of people, but I think that my life experiences did make it so that I wasn't, I didn't cause more harm than I did good. That is the best we can hope for in our work, in our lives, is that we did we did more good than harm, and I think that's a good baseline to work with. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Um, This has just been so illuminating and you've really shared so many insights about your work. And uh, I can totally see how you're going to carry this, um, these insights and this experience and with you into everything else. Like a big thing that I'm wanting to focus on is this idea of listening and the idea of attending, like, like attention is, is attending. And I, I want to work with that idea a little bit. A little more listening, a little more attending uh, would be good. Thank you so much for being here, and we really appreciate your time and your thoughts. Thanks, Alex. You're great. (laughs) As an interviewer, I appreciate you. I appreciate you, too. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Bye, Alex. So that was our discussion with Milia Ahmed. Um, This was such an interesting look into what the experience of caregiving is. Um, Coming from a very thoughtful and perceptive person who was facing an extremely complex job, complex emotionally, complex logistically, in every sense um, a real challenge. Something that called on all your faculties of intuition and stamina and sort of Uh, empathy, but also just uh, ingenuity. It's a very interesting story, and we really appreciate it. We want to talk to uh, many, many different people, so if you have a story that you'd like to tell, or you'd just like to talk about what your experiences with care work have been, please contact us at thetactileworld at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Tender Pony. Other sound design is by Patel Brothers Bingo. This is a production of uh, New Romantic Robots and Tropics of Meta. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being curious and interested in other people's lives. Have a good one.